Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Don Cook, and this week is a little different. It's Super Bowl week, and to get in the mood, we're doing a sports special as we break down the business behind three iconic sports, the NFL, Formula One, and the PGA Tour. Now, these aren't new episodes. We've covered each of these sports over the past two years on Business Breakdowns. But for this episode, we've condensed those conversations into 100 minutes of action, focusing on the similarities and differences between these major leagues. In terms of revenue, the NFL dwarfs the other two sports. But in terms of eyeballs, Formula One is the clear global leader. And from a strategic perspective, it's fascinating to see the evolution since we aired these episodes. For example, you'll hear Formula One CEO talk about the US being a key growth market. And then you'll notice that last week, Red Bull unveiled their 2023 car in New York. This year's calendar has three US races. Similarly, the upcoming weekend is the second in a series of PGA Tour events designed to bring more of the top golfers together on a regular basis. Neil explains why that was desperately needed in more detail towards the end of this episode. And finally, before we jump into the action, I want to highlight our newest Colossus show, Making Media. If you enjoy business breakdowns, I think you'll enjoy that show too. I think of it as a real-time business breakdown of our media business, Colossus, and the media industry writ large. So make sure to check it out if you like the sound of that. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get into the business of sport, starting with the NFL. Today, we are breaking down the National Football League, or as most know it, the NFL. It's a sport that dominates American Sundays from late summer into early winter. Behind what happens on the field is a $15 billion business with a unique operating and ownership structure and many stakeholders. To help break down the NFL, I'm joined by Jay Kapoor. Jay is currently general partner of venture fund VSC Ventures. And prior to his career as an investor, Jay worked in the league strategy office at the NFL. I hope you enjoy this business breakdown. We're talking about a business that's extremely widely known and lots of people engage with it, but extremely poorly understood. Most people have no idea how it works. So let's just start. For those who don't know, what is the NFL? The National Football League is the premier sports league in the United States. And they are the rights holder. And I say rights holder because we're going to talk about how that turns directly into revenue later. But they are the rights holder for professional football in the United States. There are 32 teams that make that up, names like the Dallas Cowboys, the New York Giants, New England Patriots. But then there's also the other media properties that are a part of what makes the NFL the NFL, the Super Bowl, the draft, the combine, so on and so forth. It's a $15 billion revenue property that not a lot of people understand. 
give us a sense for the scale for it. So let's start more on the finance side. What's the revenue EBITDA scale of this as if it were a business? And then let's talk a little bit more about audience size and other sort of scale metrics you think about. Yeah, so the NFL is a bit unique in the way it operates because the operations of the day-to-day are actually happening at the team level, each of the 32 clubs. And so I'm going to use the word clubs so that we don't confuse teams, but 32 clubs that operate the individual game day. But then you also have the league office, which is where I worked for three seasons down the hall from Roger Goodell, where we actually look at the league-wide revenue. And so if you take a look at the team-side revenue and the league-side revenue combined, Today, the NFL probably sits around $15 billion top line. You split that, I'd say roughly two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds league side, one-third team side. From an operating income standpoint, I think EBITDA is a little bit tough number to come into, but I can say from an operating income standpoint, costs at the NFL league side are probably $1.5 billion. So that $10 billion number dropped down to $1.5 on expenses. You're talking about $8.5 billion of operating income. That money then actually gets spread out across the 32 teams. And then there's team level expenses that come into it, which is why you see teams with operating incomes of anywhere between 250 million to negative 50 million, depending on what team you are, what market you're in. Talk about growth, I guess, again, on those two levels. Yeah, I think the biggest points of growth for the league side has been TV revenue. We're actually talking in a very interesting year because 2021 is when the new CBA got negotiated and the new TV deals for the next decade have kicked in. So just for a sense of the scale, over the next 11 years, the major TV partners are going to pay the NFL $115 billion, roughly. I'm I'm using round numbers here. You're talking about that over 11 years, that is the big four now becoming the big five, CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, and now Amazon. Combined, They want to own these NFL rights because the biggest part of NFL rights is the right to broadcast NFL games. And then on top of that, historically, you've had folks like ESPN that have also paid a lot of money for the rights to highlights so they can run things like SportsCenter, their own media properties that they've built, the 24-hour ESPN sports cycle. That is where a lot of the money is coming from on the league side, and that's where a lot of the growth has come from. On the team side, on the other hand, because the teams are actually getting revenue shared on the media end. Most of their growth has come from two spots. One is sponsorship. And I think some teams like the Dallas Cowboys and the Patriots and more recently the Buccaneers have done a really great job leveraging their local level sponsorship. We'll talk more about that. But then also from seats. Interesting dynamic is that seat revenue, the hoi polloi, are actually getting their seat level revenue. And then there is what we call suite seats, the boxes. The boxes, that revenue is 100% with the teams. As a result, the more boxes you have in a stadium, and that's why you see the LA Rams and the Minnesota Vikings building large stadiums, they get to keep a lot of that revenue. And so that's where a lot of the growth has come from. What is roughly the growth rate if you were just to zoom out in the NFL like last five years and maybe next five years? Five years ago is when I left, right? I would say we were talking about somewhere around 13, 13 and a half billion all over. And we're talking about about 15 billion today. Growing, I think, pretty healthy clip year on year. But again, you have to factor that a lot of that is because today we're talking in a year where there's been a big step up in media rights. And so the NFL grows every eight to 10 years meaningfully. If you mapped it out, and I I probably have a graph somewhere, it looks exactly like a step function that steps up every eight to 10 years. Got it. That makes sense. Let's talk about more like the metrics associated with audience and time. Like how many people watch the NFL? How much time is spent on it? 
give us a sense for the scale. There are 272 games in a 18-week NFL season. The games currently are played Thursday night, Sunday early, which is you know the 1 p.m. Eastern block, Sunday late, which is the 4.30 Eastern block, Sunday night, and then Monday night. And I say currently at the beginning of that because it used to just be the three Sunday slots. Then came Monday night football. Then more recently came Thursday night football. That's been a big part of the league's media expansion. The NFL became notorious because they were the only sport that literally owned one of the seven days of the week. They owned Sunday. And now obviously have expanded that. So Thursday, Sunday, and Monday night games are prime time. So only one game is played. So only two teams. Those will average around 20, 21 million viewers each compared to the afternoon windows on Sunday that are doing 15 to 17 million on CBS and Fox. I think time watch, Jesse, is a little bit of a weird number because it just doesn't speak to how unique the NFL is. It's such a scarcity of assets, such a low number of games compared to other leagues that I'm not sure it's that helpful. But maybe what I can share with you is 23 of the 25 most watched TV broadcast events in 2021 were NFL games. Let's shift a little bit. I want to talk about, for those who don't understand, including myself, Sports Leagues 101. Maybe talk about how the NFL is structured. And then in that explanation, what's sort of idiosyncratic to the NFL and what's normal for every league? And just kind of give us a sense for that 101. I love this question because I think decentralization is a buzzword right now. But the NFL, in a lot of ways, has been operating in a decentralized co-opetition model for six or seven decades. So Thinking about the key stakeholders in the NFL model, I think there are probably five. The league office, so that's where Roger Goodell sits in New York. The second is the individual clubs and their billionaire ownership groups. The third is players and players associations. That big three, I think, is a structure that you see with really any sport. Media partners, so CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, and now increasingly Amazon, at one point Twitter and Yahoo. These media partners, because they make up 60 to 70% of the league revenue, I think are an important stakeholder. And then lastly, maybe as a catch-all, we'll say fans, the eyeballs that are actually paying for the $15 billion engine. But you can include inside of fans, probably merchandising like Nike, sponsorship like Anheuser-Busch. You can also include you know, the new stuff that's happening with Fanatics, which is the people that run the NFL shop or sports betting like DraftKings. So all of this is really driven by fan interest in the NFL property and why those brands really want to be aligned to it. Digging in maybe one layer deeper, the league office receives that $10 billion in, in shared revenue. That revenue is split equally among the 32 teams after taking out the league-level costs. Then that revenue that is shared with the teams becomes the top line of the teams, which then they have to give out in a guaranteed amount to the players. What makes the NFL unique from some of the other teams, as you were asking, is the hard salary cap and the amount of rev share. So for comparison purposes, consider that the NFL is sharing about 60% of league revenue with the teams. The NBA is probably somewhere just under 50%. And then you've got leagues like the MLB or NHL that are in the 30s or maybe even lower than that. And so that amount of revenue sharing is actually one of the things that makes the NFL so unique. And it's the same parity of revenue sharing that allows a small market team like the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Baltimore Ravens to compete with a big market team like the New York Giants or the Los Angeles Rams. 
that is a very unique thing in the NFL that the NFL has really tried to cultivate, which is parody. You will hear a lot of owners, and I think Jerry Jones at one point got fined like $100,000 for talking about how revenue sharing really doesn't benefit the big market teams. So their whole thing is like, look, I am contributing a lot more to the pot. And yet you have these teams that are not really stepping up and contributing at that same level, sharing in a lot more of the revenue that I'm creating. Sounds a little bit like America. But generally speaking, that's how these owners think about it. So what they do on their end, at the team level, is then they sell things like sponsorship and they sell things like local level seats and that kind of stuff where they make up some of that money themselves. So the reason I give you this breakdown is because the goings on at the big three level, the individual clubs, the league office and the players are really important and really correlated. Players need to know how much the teams are making so they can negotiate their salaries. The teams need to know how much revenue they're going to get from the league because that's how they make their operating decisions every year. And then that brings us to the next piece of it, which is the media partners. The league needs to know how much money it's making from its media rights. But the media needs to know that there is labor peace because if they're negotiating a 10-year, $115 billion deal, they got to know there's not going to be a lockout in year five. And so as a result, that CBA negotiation is of massive interest to the media partners that are negotiating these rights. And so you always see the CBA gets locked in. And then about a year to 18 months later, the new TV deals get locked in. And it always works in lockstep like that. So the actual media rights, just to get into that for a second, are they a single number? And is that unique to the NFL? New York presumably generates more media viewing, or Dallas may generate more media viewing. Does more money come in for their team, but then it gets split out? Or is it all just one big... It's one big pie, generally speaking. And is that different than the MLB? Or Yeah, it is. It is because the other leagues are doing some interesting stuff at the local level. So when you think about 80 plus games in the NBA, 100 plus games in the MLB, there are not enough primetime slots for those games on national television. So there is a lot more local TV that happens for those teams. And as a result, those local TV rights are being shared with regional sports networks, Comcast LA, your SNY if you're in New York, whatever the equivalent is in St. Louis. And so those folks are taking those rights. And so as a result, that revenue is staying with the teams that are actually sharing those rights. The NFL is national. First word in National Football League. And as a result, all of those games are done nationally. And so the scale of the revenues for those games are also national. And so as a result, the deals are negotiated to be shared equally among the teams. The one biggest thing that was sort of ingrained in me from sort of the first day there, this is a collective of 32 teams. But when a sponsor comes in, when an advertiser comes in, and they want a sponsorship deal with the NFL, they're not trying to align with the Dallas Cowboys or with the Detroit Lions. They're trying to align with the NFL and the national scale that brings. That's a big difference. The MLB, the Cardinals probably have their own local media. I think it's Fox Sports Midwest or whatever. They make their own deal with them. Are there other major differences in terms of the way the league is structured? Are these revenues are shared for the NFL versus other leagues? We can go through a list of a couple of things that make the NFL unique. So we talked about revenue sharing and the hard salary cap. I think the other thing that makes it unique is that money is not guaranteed for players, whereas money is a lot more guaranteed in the MLB and in, I think, basically every other sport. I mean, NHL, NBA, a lot more of that revenue is guaranteed, especially in the case of injury, which again, you think about a little bit ironic because one might say the NFL probably has the most injuries in aggregate, maybe not the most serious ones, but the most injuries in aggregate. They also have the largest rosters 
15 men on an NBA bench, 53 in the NFL. So the average player is also making a lot less in the NFL, even if the superstars are making quite a bit more. How did that come to be? And then what are the implications from your perspective on that? Well, I mean, a couple of implications are that the union is a lot stronger with the NFL because they have to negotiate on behalf of the lunch pail guys as opposed to the superstars. If there's 53 men on a roster, 60% of them are making a league minimum salary. So when your CBA is being negotiated, the dynamic there is that you're negotiating on behalf of the guys that maybe are only playing three to four seasons, but this money is really important to them, especially to cover you know long-term effects from injuries and things like that. This past CBA negotiation, you heard a lot of the superstar players get mouthy on Twitter and say, oh my God, my revenue is being cut down or how much I can make is being capped in order to support guys that maybe only play a couple of games a season kind of thing. That doesn't really happen in other leagues. I think the other dynamic on that side is that fans of the NFL follow teams in a way that fans follow players when you talk about the NBA or the MLB. LeBron leaving Cleveland to go to Lakers took a lot of his fans with him because they were LeBron fans. You have that with rare moments like Tom Brady leaving New England to go to Tampa Bay. But generally speaking, because players are seen as a little bit more fungible in the NFL, that's a dynamic that happens as a result of not having guaranteed revenue, not having sort of long-term contract spans with these players. Now that we have a good sense for how the NFL works, I want you to go back and give us a little bit of the history because once upon a time, America's pastime was baseball. I'm still a huge baseball fan, but I'm curious to learn how did the NFL come to dominate the landscape of American sports? I love this question. I'm a history nut, so I could go on for hours. I'm going to try to condense a hundred years of history and maybe we'll just go a little bit decade by decade. But at the top, to answer your question, two big things have driven the NFL's dominance merging with rivals, and the growing value of linear TV broadcast rights. So let's start with September 17th, 1920. George Hallis and other owners, they convene at a car dealership in Canton, Ohio, to form the AFPA, which later became the NFL. That NFL back in the day, you know, they had stars like Galloping Ghost, Red Grange, Slinging Sammy Baugh. And those guys made, at that time, a ridiculous $100,000 a year. That was what a professional athlete or at the NFL earned. So that continues for about a decade. 1933, you have the NFL championship game, which is created featuring George Hallis's Bears, Tim Mara's New York Giants. This goes on to later become the modern Super Bowl, but not happened for a couple of decades. Post-30s, World War II hits. And there are so few players that you actually have to have NFL teams merge. So you might have heard of the Pennsylvania Steagles because the Steelers had to merge with the Eagles because there were so few players to actually play. But coming out of World War II, there is now so much demand that a rival league, the AAFC, spins up. And that's where you have teams like Paul Brown's Cleveland Browns. They would then go on to merge with the NFL. Start to see this become a theme. So every time a rival league comes up, over time, the NFL just subsumes them, adds them as a team, brings the owners into the ownership conversation. These were now the Midwestern teams. So you're talking about the Cleveland Browns, talking about Detroit Lions, Johnny Unitas's Indianapolis Colts. And they go on to beat the New York Giants in the sudden death overtime game, still to this day called the greatest game ever played. And the reason for that, I think, is maybe less about the gameplay, but the broadcast of that Johnny Unitas Indianapolis Colts over the New York Giants game drew in millions of viewers, became the foundation of the NFL on TV today. 1960s sees the finding of another 
rival league called the AFL. And this is started by the Hunt family and the Kansas City Chiefs. So that AFL starts to compete with the NFL into a annual AFL-NFL game that we now call the Super Bowl. That first game was Vince Lombardi's NFL Packers against the Chiefs. And the Packers beat the Chiefs and that became Super Bowl number one. So now we go another decade forward, 1970s. The AFL merges with the NFL. And I think this kind of created what we all as football fans sort of think of as the golden age of the NFL. So you're thinking of Mean Joe Green and the Steelers, the undefeated 72 Dolphins, Dallas Cowboys start to brand themselves as America's team. Bill Walsh starts to develop the West Coast offense. And these local heroes and storylines, they emerge as a result of the two leagues merging. And from a business perspective, what were like the big milestones? And at what point was it safe to say the NFL is bigger than the MLB? The capstone to me of when I think the NFL really took off, and it's hard to sort of give it to one person, but I'm going to try. 1989, the NFL brought in one of the most, I think, forward-thinking owners in modern sports and possibly one of the best businessmen in America. Jerry Jones buys the Dallas Cowboys for $140 million. Today, that would be roughly $300 million inflation-adjusted. Now that franchise is worth $5.5 billion. So, I mean, clearly, he has done very well with it. But I think Jerry coming in the league was important because he understood that the NFL was not about the sport. The NFL was entertainment. It was more akin to wrestling than maybe people give it credit for. And I think around that time, 70s into 80s, is when you also see 24-hour sports networks, the ABC wide world of sports. And I think Jones and then the owners that came after him, Bob and Jonathan Kraft and the Patriots, start to realize that all of the field stuff that's happening with players, the negotiations, the trading, the rivalries, that's not a distraction from the game. That is a part of the entertainment product. And I think when the NFL embraced that is really when it took off and nobody was catching them. How do the media rights play into this, the viewership? Can you talk about how that progressed over the decades? Over time, what we really saw was there used to be three linear TV channels, CBS, Fox, ABC. As you started to see more and more cable channels emerge, and you had the TSNs of the world and so on and so forth. The linear broadcast partners wanted something marquee that they couldn't miss. Number one sport in America around the 70s and 80s was starting to become the National Football League. So they say, okay, in order to basically keep our dominance and relevance as national media, it makes sense for us to partner with the National Football League. At the same time, the National Football League, and credit to former Commissioner Pete Rizal for realizing this, says, okay, most of our money is coming from media rights. We need to start really working lockstep with these media partners, lock in long-term deals, and start spending against that so we can really grow the league property. You know, the league doesn't just expand by adding more teams. You start to see that in some international sports. You add a team, each team has a franchise fee, so on and so forth. The league grows by adding games, adding properties. But the biggest thing that stays consistent, or at least the league wants to stay consistent, is the quality of the product the quality of the game. And so if they kept the quality high, the media partners keep coming to it. Now, fast forward a couple of decades, and you're now in a streaming era where there is no appointment viewing. I think after Game of Thrones ended, there really hasn't been anything from a scripted content standpoint that has become appointment viewing, right? We all talk about Squid Game for two weeks, and then that's it. Whereas the NFL is a 365-day-a-year sport, and it becomes appointment viewing, 
And so for the media partners, as they're thinking about what are the rights I need to own, the NFL, because of its scarcity, starts to keep increasing in value. And can you talk a little bit about the game schedule and how that makes it even a more scarce resource or how that creates unique scarcity? So this is a really fun story. And this was, I think, one of my favorite days when I got to the NFL because I got to go down to scheduling and see actually like the big board of how they do it. So for about 30 years, the NFL schedule was handled by one guy. Val Pinchbeck was his name. I don't know if you've seen the movie Dune, but it was like the Mentats from Dune. Like he would just sit in front of a big board and he would run calculations in his head and he would go, Patriots, Buccaneers, week four. And he would just put it on there. And the reason this was so impressive was because these stadiums are not just used for football. They got concerts. They have the Westminster Dog Show. They have all these other things that are happening. They conflict with a Sunday night schedule. And then when it goes from just Sunday to Thursday and Monday, you're now talking about working around multi-million dollar projects that these teams are doing in order to basically finance the cost of billion-dollar stadiums. So over time, this expanded to actually being computed. The scheduling team, Howard Katz, Mike North, they built these algorithms that would simultaneously run different variables. What happens if we put a rivalry game, Packers-Vikings this day, and then the next day is Cowboys-Giants? Okay, but then we don't have enough rivalry games in the back half of the season. Okay, let's space them out. Let's do that kind of thing. So they go through billions of permutations, and then they share it with the commissioner. And the commissioner says, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't really love this. So they go back and they run the variables again. Or Taylor Swift has her reunion tour in LA that day, and she's going to be taking over SoFi. Okay, the Rams can't have a home game. But let's say you move it around, and now the Rams are on the road three weeks in a row. You can't have that either. So all these different variables add up. Scheduling, I think, is one of the most fascinating aspects of how the NFL really makes it work because they are trying to not counter-program against something that would take away from the value of that national audience. And because there's so few games, each game is that much more scarce and more interesting, which then sort of it all kind of keeps flowing into the value of that 23 out of 25 we talked about earlier. 100%. I mean, it's this interesting dance that you have to do because there were 256 games. Now there are 272. Obviously, that has brought in additional revenue into the league. But one additional game also has a lot of wear and tear on the athlete's body. It's also a lot more from an operating income standpoint where you have to run another game and another game day. And so there is an interesting balance that teams have to strike in terms of how many more games can we add before we start to lose that scarcity value and each game maybe starts to lose a little bit of its relevance. I want to go a little bit, we've talked a little bit about the P&Ls and stuff, but I want to go one or two levels deeper into them. So let's start with the league. So you talked about the league, it's 10 or $11 billion a year in media rights, and their costs are $1.5 billion on top of that. Are there any other sources of revenue at the league level? So the $10 billion a year at the national level is media and then some. So let's actually break it down a little bit more. So media rights can actually be broken down into a couple of components, the biggest of which is the $5 billion or so the league is getting from CBS, NBC, Fox, ESPN, and now Amazon. So that's just $5 billion to broadcast rights, we can call them. Then there's NFL Sunday Ticket, which for a long time was on DirecTV. We don't know where it could be next year. That's worth about $1.5 billion just for DirecTV to have the rights to broadcast all the games and sell a subscription package against it. That's how they make their money. On top of that, the NFL is unique in a way because they have their own media entity, NFL Network. And for a long time, NFL Network actually incubated Thursday Night Football before they spun it off into its own billion-dollar property. That plus 
NFL Red Zone, some folks might be familiar with. That altogether, probably 700 million just from the owned and operated media assets. So now we're talking about what, six and a half plus seven. So we're already roughly call it 7.25 billion just from media. There's other media aspects to it, but I'm going to bucket them a little bit differently, like Super Bowl and postseason. There'll be a better breakdown. So for media at 7.25, we go to consumer products, your Nike jerseys, your car decals, all those sort of different branded products that you see. That's all league level. So that's 500 million that you are getting just in consumer products. Sponsorship. So Anheuser-Busch, Bridgestone, Pepsi, Verizon, so on and so forth. That's another half a billion. So now we're talking around eight and a half billion total. Digital media, the NFL app, fantasy, any of that stuff, probably another half million. What are we at now? I hope you're keeping a running tally. Nine and change, right? Okay, good. So I'm on track. Postseason. So this is where some of the media overlaps a little bit, but you're talking about playoffs and Super Bowl. Super Bowl, and we could talk about it a little bit deeper because it's one of my favorite topics. That's like a $200 million property in and of itself. But add on to that playoffs, you're talking about a $300 million property all at the national level. So now we're at about nine and change, nine and a half. International, there's three games in the UK. There's international streaming rights that are sold to different countries. So now we're coming up on, call it 9.7. Sports betting, which is a new thing this year, added somewhere between 250 to 300 million to the top line. So now we're up on 10. And then I think you'll tack on a couple other investments, joint ventures, some small revenue projects, stuff that they did with NFL on location probably another 100 to 200 million. So that's really how we make up the total 10 million top line. But 7.25, as we said, really just attributed directly to media, whether it's the O&O properties or the licensed properties. So the costs are only 1.5 billion. I guess, what are the major buckets of costs at the national level? The NFL, at least when I was there, I don't think it's grown that much, is only around 1,100 employees. And the bulk of that cost is Roger Goodell's salary. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's actually, it's much deeper than that. It's obviously running the league operations. You've got teams that are going to games. You have folks that are instituting the salary cap. You have marketing and sponsorship folks. But a lot of it is personnel costs. It's headcount. On the NFL network side, you have some more production and capex that has to go in every year in order to really operate the NFL network at a high level. But The cool thing about the league is that a lot of the costs, the human costs, are actually down to the team level. So if it's only 1.5 billion in cost, then the eight and a half billion is being split 32 ways. I'm still trying to get my head around the 1.5 billion. Even if you're paying the average employee 200 grand on that, that's not 200 million dollars. Are games really expensive to produce? Like what else is making up that big dollar amount? Are there cost of sales in certain places? You got to include cost of sales. I mean, if you're thinking about sponsorship, you have the actual assets that you're physically paying for. It's out of home, things like that. Even on the network side, if you are just setting up a network and running a network, there's a few hundred million dollars of costs that come out of that piece. You have to sort of factor in on location, travel for people, expenses from that standpoint. What does it cost to run a game roughly? Probably talking about somewhere on the order of five to 10 million. And it's a wide range because you have teams like the Dallas Cowboys where every event is a massive party and there's all these different things that happen. And then teams that are maybe a little bit less profitable, like the Detroit Lions and the Buffalo Bills that are maybe not going as all out to run a game. 
I'm sure some of those cost structures have changed from what I remember. That's sort of the level that you're talking about from an operational standpoint at the teams. And so the 1.5 billion also includes a little bit of the cost of sales, but it also includes the actual sort of like day-to-day operations of a league. Draft is a massive media property. That takes some revenue to run. Combine is another massive property that the NFL has created and now has sold broadcast rights against, but they still have to like rent out a massive stadium and run the thing. One last thing on the league level, and then I want to talk about the team. So you're the commissioner, obviously renegotiating media rights and that step function as a way to grow this business. Are there other major drivers or things that you would do to drive the top line of the overall NFL? Big needle moving things? There are a couple things. So every year, the league probably comes in with a bulk of the revenue contracted and guaranteed. But then there's a lot of stuff happening on upsells, digital media upsells, sponsorship upsells. You did one activation with Anheuser-Busch, but hey, we have another creative idea that we can do another activation with you. The total cost of that activation can be negotiated over the course of the season, but probably adds 30 to 40 million to the top line. There are interesting things that are happening around ticketing, where the league is trying to figure out how do they do dynamic ticketing so that as you get closer to a game, if the game becomes more valuable in the playoff picture, you can adjust pricing and do kind of stuff that way. So there are a lot of things that teams would do and the teams we worked with would do to figure out how do we grow that sort of non-contracted piece of the pie. And you would typically have targets against it where you say, look, we don't have a home improvement sponsor. Okay, that's a new sponsorship that we can add in this season working with Lowe's and Home Depot. Okay, there isn't an official watch sponsor. Wonder what Timex or Rolex or whoever are thinking. How do we add that? So sponsorship's a good way. Events are a good way. We haven't really dug into this, but the NFL really excels at taking cost centers and turning them into media properties. So what is the NFL draft? Why do we actually have to have an event? We could just do this all from Zoom on our couches. But the NFL creates a three-day party in every city where people show up. There's a massive event. There's a massive media broadcast package. ESPN and NFL Network pay to cover it for all that time. That was just a cost center. And now it's a $100 million property potentially. Combine, I think, is headed that way. What is the combine? It's college players working out for three days. Why the hell do we care? And yet they have turned that into from a cost center to a revenue center. Anything that the NFL is doing for its own purposes, it will find a way to get some eyeballs on it because it thinks it can sell revenue on it. Well, Jay, this was uh, super fascinating and personally very gratifying. So thank you for breaking down the NFL. To break down F1, I'll be joined by F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali and Armand Gokul Klein, a partner and investor at Ruain, Kniff, and Goldfarb. This was an incredibly fun episode where you'll hear both an inside and outside view. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of F1. So Armand, a great place to begin our discussion on Formula One, the business, is with revenue. And actually, even before revenue, it's probably good to start with the viewership and sort of the fan base because so much of the revenue comes from those big super fans that Formula One has accumulated over the years. Let's begin there. How many people watch Formula One? Give us a sense for like a race day. Like how many people are involved? How big is this thing? There are 400 million or so unique fans globally. And just to give you a comparison point there, the NFL might have more like 100 million. And even the Premier League is probably closer to 300 million. And a Premier League is truly a global sport in some ways, even though the avid fans are more regional and local. And so there's just a huge fan base here. And 
the fans are really almost all of them tend to be avid because it's such a technical sport. Now, the Drive to Survive series on Netflix has changed that a little bit with a, a little bit more of the casual fan coming in. But it is one of the largest, if not the largest, league in the world by fan base, depending on kind of what metric you use. If you go back across Formula One's history, to what do you most attribute that fact? I mean, that's a big statement that even relative to the Premier League, which is very global in nature, it's even bigger. What do you attribute that massive size to over the years? I think it's one of the only truly global sports out there. So the Premier League has got global reach, but it's really a regional local sport. Teams are all local. And even if you go to someone that's outside the UK and say to them, hey, do you follow the Premier League? They almost certainly will say, here's my local soccer team that I follow. But I, hey, in Premier League, which is one of the preeminent leagues out there, I also follow them and here's my team in the Premier League. But it's really a secondary relationship. With Formula One, Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport. It's so far larger than any other motorsport out there. And it's truly global, you know, 21, 22, 23 races in 2021, 22 countries. So you're getting local fan engagement across the world and you're getting people who are finding relationships with different parts of the sport. So the drivers are from different countries. The teams are owned by different members of different countries. So it's got truly global reach in a way that few sports do. So obviously, this massive group of 400 million engaged fans is the primary driver of three key revenue buckets for Formula One. Can you first list what each of those three are and sort of the percentage of total revenue that they represent? And then I'd love to spend some time double-clicking on each of them to understand exactly how it works. Absolutely. There are three main primary drivers of revenue. The first is race or promoter fees. Those are essentially the fees that a local partner pays Formula One to host a race. Formula One isn't actually putting on the race itself. It charges a fee to a local partner who then hosts the race, sets up the racetrack, sets up all the entertainment around the race. And that's just under a third of revenues today. The second bucket is broadcast revenues, obviously just transmission of the broadcast rights of the sport across the world to different broadcast partners. That's just a touch over a third of revenues. And then finally, there's sponsorship and advertising. Today, that's about 15% of revenues, though I would say that's probably where there's the most opportunity for growth versus the other two. There's a final bucket, let's call it, which is other. That's about 15% of revenues as well. The primary driver there is paddock club revenues. So Paddock Club is essentially the VIP section at a race. And the league, Formula One, has the rights to sell tickets to that and to host the VIP section in a handful of races. And so that's kind of the biggest driver. There are other drivers. Formula One's involved with Formula Two and Formula Three racing, kind of the minor leagues, if you will, and generate some revenue from there. There's some revenue tied to transporting the team's cars around. There's a fleet of 747s that basically help the circus go from one spot to the other uh, around the world. But those are all lower margin if you will, than the primary three. So even though it might be 15% in that final bucket of revenue, it's a smaller portion of profits. So I think the total pie is 2 billion or so of revenue generated by the sport and nice, simple understanding of how much is coming from each of those. I'd love to dive into the three primary ones and maybe we'll touch on the ancillary revenue streams and, and some things that might happen in the future at the end. Let's start with the promotion fees. So this is all around the track. And I'd love to understand sort of the economics and the business of the track itself. Like who owns these track? Who builds them? Who is the promoter? How do they engage? Do they own the track? Does someone else, do they engage with the track owners? And just sort of like why they do it. So I'm assuming 
they pay a big fee to Formula One, and then they earn a return on that spend. So just walk us through that portion of the business. The model is everything you said. (laughs) So sometimes it's the racetrack owner. Usually it'll be a local car or racing enthusiast club that owns a racetrack and is the promoter. Other times the promoter will be the government. Sometimes the promoter will be a local business person who decides to rent the track and then put on effectively a show. Formula One is a global spectacle. I mean, you've seen the video that comes out of these races, Monaco obviously being the most famous one. It's a global VIP high-end spectacle. And so it's not necessarily just racing enthusiasts that are interested in it. If you want to think about the way that revenue works, is as you said, the promoter will usually agree to pay a fee to Formula One. That fee can be anywhere from near zero, which is what a Monaco is, given the historic importance and historic relationship that race uh, that city, it's not even a racetrack, has had with the sport. Typically, you'll have a group of what they call core races in Western Europe that might pay more like a 10 to 20 million fee, depending on the race. And again, these are individually negotiated. They are not publicized, so they're not readily available. Nobody likes to talk about them. And then finally, you have flyaway races. These are races in kind of the emerging world where usually the promoter or the government has an interest in trying to use the F1 name to bring tourism or to bring some of that VIP pizzazz, if you will, to the local market, where you'll see 30 million plus race fees. And there's been a big debate about whether or not fees that are paid are sustainable. In other words, do the promoters get to generate a return on that? It's very expensive to put on a race like this. The FIA requirements for a Formula One racetrack are very high. You can imagine if you have a car going at the speeds, these things are going at potholes are not okay. And so things just have to be at exacting standards. That said, I think there is good evidence that it's funny, the relationship to the profitability of a race versus the fee to a race is not uh, direct. So some of the more profitable races also happen to be the highest fee races. It's really increasingly become evident that It's how well someone does at monetizing the race itself. Good job do you do creating demand for the the sport? How much of a show do you put on? Do you have concerts, tier one musical acts? Do you bring in different famous people to kind of try to draw more attention into it? Do you start tiering your offering so that there's something even beyond the paddock club, the IP club that you can charge even more for? And the best promoters are very good at doing that and can pay high fees and yet also generate a profit. And some of the promoters have a harder time doing it. I'm assuming then that the source of revenue for them are the obvious ones, ticket sales, all the parties, extra events, probably gear and stuff like this. You got it. So their cost is everything and anything to put on the race. Formula One has a few costs it bears, uh, mainly around creating the broadcast, which then it resells to its broadcast sponsors. But in terms of actually putting on the race, all of the costs associated with that are with the promoter. And then the primary revenue is ticketing, as you said. Sometimes it doesn't include VIP because this league has kept it. In some agreements, it does. And then, like you said, Austin does a very good job. For example, they'll have a usually a headline musical act associated with it. If you buy a higher tier ticket, you can get access to that act. And so they can create some monetization that way. This is a fascinating part because I always think about supply and demand, right? You said 23 races or so, 24 races. With 400 million fans, it kind of seems to me like the market would bear (laughs) as many races and different locations as Formula One was willing to dole out. How do you think about like expansion of the number of races per year, the number of tracks? You could see someone building a track like they build a stadium. Is this one dimension along which the business gets bigger? 
That's a great question. And one, the league struggles with itself. It's not as linear as I think we as investors might like to think of it as because there is just a huge logistics lift to move these teams from country to country. They show up usually on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, practices on Friday, qualifying is on Saturday, the race is on Sunday. Then you pack up an entire racetrack worth of people and equipment and you got to ship it off to the other part of the world. This isn't like a local race where the infrastructure is permanent and you're just moving some people around from uh, one track to the other, like it might be with a NASCAR or with Indy here in the US. I do think there is opportunity to grow the race count. Management has talked about that. When Liberty took over the series, it was doing more like 19 races. So we're already up to 23 this year. It's been publicized that the current agreements allow for races up to 25. But it's not so easy because the teams, it's just an enormous amount of pressure on these teams that are traveling around the world and have hundreds, if not over a thousand people that they have to move around. And then all the equipment that comes with it. And it's a high cost for the teams too, to move people and teams around. Now they get more revenue because they have a revenue share with the league. But I suspect if you talk to most teams, they would tell you, you know, they're starting to approach those limits where they think it's viable. The other thing to point out, and I think Liberty talks about this openly and and smartly is you don't want to oversaturate the market. You don't want to have too many races where this starts to lose some of its specialness uh, as a good brand manager and kind of like an Aramez, which limits the high-end bags it puts out. And we've seen sport start to maybe overdo the number of races and content they released. You know, NASCAR has really increased over the last decade the number of races it offers and, and arguably has hurt some of the ability to monetize that brand. And so Formula One is very cognizant of that as well. So about a third of the revenues come from the event itself, the promoter fees paid back to F1, the parent. The second big bucket, which is the largest, is broadcast. Talk us through how this works. I mean, I'm sure this is like a window into the changing world. This is a big theme in over-the-top streaming providers versus these intermediated deals with broadcasting partners. How has this worked historically for F1? How does the deal work that they strike? How many deals do they strike to earn their revenue? The way it was monetized under previous ownership when Bernie was running the show, he really had a handful. I think it was four or five key contracts with key Western European broadcasters, which drove the great majority of the value. I mean, the history of F1 is Western Europe. And so he just went out and said, okay, I'm just going to monetize my avid core fan base. And focus on just that. These typically were multi-year contracts. They could be anywhere from uh, three years to five plus. They had natural escalators built into them and they were what you would expect a sport contract, broadcast contract to be every five years or so. You you know sit down at the table again with have a bid in each individual country to say, okay, who wants to carry the French signal? Who wants to carry the UK signal? And historically, this was one where you had a mix of pay TV versus free TV. And the idea was free TV helps you, it helps to ensure you have a healthy fan base and engagement with new fans. Pay TV helps you monetize it better and, and generate higher fees. Right before Liberty came on the scene, there was a big shift towards pay TV. By the time Liberty came on in 2017, it was really five contracts, mostly over pay TV that were driving the great majority of that broadcast revenue. This is probably the area where Liberty has done the most in a short amount of time where the dollars necessarily haven't changed, but what's going on behind the scenes has changed quite a bit. They've talked about how they're fine with pay TV, but they want to make sure there's access to live TV to keep that fan base engaged. 
So they've done a lot of work there. And then obviously, OTT became a reality very quickly under their ownership and under previous ownership. It wasn't something that was really tackled. And so they not only offered their own OTT product called F1 TV Pro, which is focused on that real avid, knowledgeable fan and giving them access in most markets to uh, races and to more content around the races. But they also started to cut deals with broadcasters to partner with an OTT offering in various countries because of the hodgepodge of contracts that have been cut. And because these are multi-year, you don't get to just reset them quickly. There's a lot of work that's being done at F1 to try to ensure that the value of that OTT right is monetized, be that in partnership with the local broadcaster or just on its own. What starts to get exciting about broadcast as you look forward, obviously, is do we start to see competition from the streaming providers? The value of content for sports and live content in particular is really down to what's the demand and the competition for that right. And as we've seen the streaming companies obviously achieve significant scale, the question has been, are they going to dabble in live sports rights, which is kind of one of the few bastions left for linear. I think it was probably a telling moment when uh, Amazon finally kind of fired the first salvo and made a bid for some NFL rights. What gets very exciting to think about is what happens if you have this global content, live content here that's unique like F1 is, and you start to see in countries like, especially in Western Europe, like the UK, where F1 is a truly important sport content to own, when you have the linear players fighting with the streaming companies, where you know you could argue this is that last wall of defense in some ways for the linear companies, and, and I think the streaming companies probably know it. This may be kind of a dumb question, but just to make sure I understand it from F1's perspective, I would assume this is a very simple business, which is you already mentioned they bear the cost to shoot the race itself, to create the content that then goes to these providers or these partners. But I'm assuming beyond that, that's basically it. They're handing over a basically digital content that they produce and the broadcaster can then do whatever they want with it. And that F1's revenue is simply the contract that they agree to upfront in these fixed contracts. Yeah, that's right. At a high level, I think because there were so many different types and forms of that contract sign, there are certain countries where, for example, the league owns the OTT rights, so the broadcaster can only offer it on a linear offering. There are some nuances there. But to your point, this is really a situation where you have a pretty fixed cost to create the content and you're retransmitting it to your broadcast partners who are just paying you a fee and then either creating channels around it. So in the UK, there is an F1 only channel in Sky Sports that you have to subscribe to because they create so much content around it that they can then monetize themselves on top of the fee versus other countries where you'll just see a simple retransmission. So the third bucket now is sponsorships. And this one is really interesting to me because it just seems like handled well, this is the ultimate in lending out the power of the F1 brand to sponsor partners, which is a delicate thing, right? You want great partners, but you also want great rates. And sometimes those two things might not line up. How does this manifest? Like what are sponsors paying for? How does it look today? How do you think it might look in the future? This is probably the area where there should be the most excitement because there's the most white space. It's the least developed. In the old days, it was simply a menu card. And hey, if you want a placard on the side of the racetrack at all 19, 20, 21 races, you pay X fee. If you want it just for your local race, you pay Y fee. And it was just a very simple way of monetizing that right. And as a result, it's not surprising that there was no soft drink partner for the sport. 
no true tech partner for years for the sport. What starts to get a little bit fun now is Liberty has started to look at this opportunity and say, gosh, if you just a little more professionally slice and dice the pie so that you start to recruit regional and local partners and say, hey, it's not just about putting your name on the racetrack in a placard. It's about lending our brand to you and allowing you to use it in a way to help your brand build your brand. Is that something that we can do that can allow us to monetize this right better? And that's kind of why I would say together with the white space, plus the fact that there's this opportunity to think about monetization in a more nuanced way, you start to get excited about the opportunities. Again, it's a smaller revenue driver for the sport overall. And if you look at the sponsorship and advertising revenue for F1 as a league, you know it's a fraction of what it is for many other leagues, simply because of the fact. And, and you could argue it should be more because in most leagues, you know, it's just about who can I partner with locally. And in the US, if you're at the NFL, there's not a lot of folks outside the US that are going to be interested in that brand. Whereas again, as we talked about, there's 21 countries involved in the race calendar this year. So there's opportunity to monetize in a significantly better way. So Armand, I think this is a great place to pause and shift our conversation with Stefano. Through all of that framing of the business, it's clear that the F1 brand has an incredibly passionate following. And if I think about the business, obviously the fans are what make the business great and possible in the future. There's ways that you can make money directly from the fans. Obviously, that more fans makes it more appealing to sponsors. Like The fan really does seem to be a key aspect here. And so I've got a couple of questions there. Obviously, you want as many fans as you can get, but you also want them to be as engaged on average as possible. Just taking myself as an example, I became much more familiar with F1 because of the Netflix series. I think a lot of people in the US did. What is that kind of partnership like? There's things like social media that just by letting the drivers be more active, I think in the past they were restricted. So obviously, active drivers who are great personalities like Lewis Hamilton brings in more fans, but you also spend money to acquire customers. So Maybe walk us through those two decisions, the partnership with Netflix and the decision on opening up the drivers and social media and and the impact that it's had to grow that fan base. I think it's very important to understand what is our vision for the future on that respect. By the way, when the Netflix project was presented, not all the teams and neither the media with whom we have the actual content were very happy. They were suspicious. They thought, well, they're going to have something that we don't have. They're going to do something that it's out of the court of Formula One. So why we're doing that? And I have to say, and I don't take any single merit for that because it was done for the vision of Chase and Sean Bratches there before under you know the supervision of Greg Maffei. I have to say that was the right way to do. And now I have to say that who are the first that want to go more on this route are the teams, the drivers, and actually... The media broadcasters that today see that as an added product that they can put on their show to give more information, more content, sorry, to the viewers. So that was a job that was incredible. And the effect on the audience or the awareness of a non-avid fan is massive. So we don't stop. We are thinking what else. We can be traditional or preparing the same kind of things in the future. Of course, this year we are still working on in order to for Netflix to be involved in our day life. Now you don't, uh, I would say, it's part of what we are doing. It's great because people want to understand what is our life. They want to understand the curiosity behind the formality of our sport. And therefore, it's up to us to open up and uh, to have uh, maybe a certain limit that you need to have still the appetite, maybe not to have the full des- uh, up to the dessert because the dessert has to come later. So this is something that we are working to, like, that sort of, with a different approach because when you work with a sport, 
media approach, you want to be very technical. You want to be focused, and this is for sure, we don't want to lose that huh? because it's part of our DNA. Very technical information that you want to give, timing, precision, data analysis, uh, preparation of the race. The normal fans, the new fans, they, they really are interested in another information that we can provide to them. So that's why I see that very fascinated because it's complementary. We are not taking away something to give to the others a different product. We are amplifying the content on what we want to offer to our customer. And this is exactly the same thing that what we said, let's move on. Social media, like it or not like it, is a way to be connected with the people. And we know very well that it's not only for Formula One. All our people today want to be the protagonist. And the more we feel them, the protagonists of what we are doing, the more we will be speaking the same language the people are watching us and feel them part of that. And that's why we are, for example, we have the back race this week. I got another meeting with the drivers to make sure that they really are in the loop of what we are discussing. They are our heroes. They're not 2000, they're 20. So they are different characteristics, different age. They represent different country. They represent different path of growth out of Formula One. They represent the voice of people that see them like the heroes. So they need to understand that they are single voice. They need to be real. They need to be real, but they have a great responsibility for that. And I have to say, in this period, the, the drivers is a great asset for us because everyone, in being different, of course, understand the role that they're playing in order to make Formula One more and more accessible. Obviously, there's the sport and there's the business, and they have to work together. The latest Concord Agreement is really interesting in this regard. Can you describe what the Concord Agreements have been historically? Like, what is that concept and why this most recent one in 2021 was so different and how that impacts the business? It's, uh, first of all, Concord Agreement is the agreement that is enabling to put the governance procedure and the way how the teams, the FIA and us as a commercial holder are basically working in terms of uh, revenue sharing. And the biggest difference is that, first of all, that's been signed last year, and it will be up to the end of 2025, will allow all the teams to know exactly the amount of money that they are receiving from the system. And it has been modulated in a way that we wanted to give the possibility to the smaller team to have more money to make sure they could be more sustainable for the future. The mechanism is quite complex and we cannot go into details of it, but allows the team to know for sure, even the small one or the last one, to have a certain guarantee on what is the level of revenue that we, he will receive at the end of the championship. And the other thing is that is very important to, to, to connect to what I said at the beginning, allow the system to put caps on the technical expenses as a first step of managing the cost of the business in a very transparent way. It's not trivial, it's not simple. It is the first step in this direction. But immediately, from the business perspective, activated the interest of the financial market. I can guarantee to you that all the teams received a lot of requests of interest of the financial world to see, is there any chance that you want to sell the team? Is there any chance that I can be part of the stakes of the team? This is because... Now it is much clearer what is the dimension of the investment of CapEx and operating costs that a, a team has to handle in the future. It has been, a, I would say, really a, an earthquake in Formula Never happened before. And that has been done thanks to the work of the last years. And I have to say that the team understood that. So it has been a massive step for a, the right way to manage the business for the future. 
I'd love to understand going back to the sport itself a little bit, th- three key levels, the car, the driver, and the team, what great means. You ran the Ferrari team, you won one championship, maybe multiple, but definitely one championship as the leader of that team. Maybe we'll start at the high level with the team. What does great mean? Like, What do great teams do better than the other teams to win championships? Well, of course, a great team means that you have a lot of resources, a lot of competences, a lot of people. You develop the knowledge that it's a matter of experience. It's not by chance that you have seen other manufacturer in the past that came in and left the sport thinking that only because they were representing a big OEM or big brand and with no limit of investment, they thought they could be able to win the championship. It's not for that. It's a sport that is very complicated at a technical level. In a way, one of the limits of a Formula 1 on which we need to grow is the fact is auto-referential. If you look at the people that are in the technical side of it, they are always the same. They are creating that kind of things at the top level. It's difficult to get in. Now, with this new approach that we are pushing with with all the teams to have new talent bringing into the sport, I think the next years, in the next three, five years, we're going to see a big change in that. When we're talking about great teams, we're talking about facility that are very, very important. You need to have, for example, for a team that is working on the chassis, a wind tunnel to develop your car. You have a group of research and development engineers that are working not on the operation of the race itself, but in the preparation and development of the car for the future. On top of that, you have to work on the simulation. We have growth in the last, I would say, 10 years. The level of simulation in Formula 1 is at the top. The simulation using Formula 1 is even higher than the ones they're using to go to the space. It's The complexity of it is incredible, incredible. And it's so fascinating if you're interested in the, in the, on the technical side of it that is really Impressive, impressive. The level of confidence that you need to be at the top level of Formula 1 is immense. On the aerodynamic side, on the dynamic side, on the engineering side, now on the hybrid side for the future. And these are things that are evolving step by step in the Formula 1. What is really great for Formula 1 is that the speed of activation on what you need to develop is impressive. And that's the nature of the sport. When the green flag or the green light is on, you have to start. You cannot wait. So this need of being active on time gives you really a sort of alarm of a time on which you need to push for not uh, sleeping. It's an, a super incredible active job. You cannot say, okay, if I don't do that tonight, I will do it tomorrow. Impossible. The race is on Sunday. You know that. And they are not waiting for you. This sort of uh, push, it's a great challenge for everyone at all level. Mechanics, if you think of mechanics, today there is a pit stop. They do it, they change the tires in 1.9 seconds. Can you imagine? 1.9 seconds, you don't have even the time to arrive. By the way, the young drivers, normally they were used to the previous championship, they will go there, wait, change the gear, the clutch, the gear, and so on. They arrive, they already have to arrive while they're stopping, getting ready to restart because it's so quickly. This because is because it's related to the level of technology of the systems. For example, on the guns, special technology also for the guns. There is a special technology to release the car without waiting for the human reaction time of each of the people involved. There is a system, I remember when I was put there, that we prepared the guys around the car with a specific training because we had a simulation depending on the position of each guy around the car to maximize the training, the fitness of the muscle, depending on what you were doing. 
put the ties, taking away the ties, putting the gun, taking up the jack and so on. This wow. is the level of, of sophistication that is Formula One. This is Formula One. This is, sorry if I may be too emotional, on that, but this is really great. No other sport has this kind of approach. I love this idea of the team, people training their muscles for a certain kind of tire they're taking off. What a crazy optimization. As you think about the business itself, and maybe let's think five years forward or seven years forward, what do you think will be the most different about the F1 business then versus now? I would say the future is positive. I see the intensity once again of the emotion that we are bringing to the fans and the viewers that we are having this year are growing. We have an incredible opportunity to develop new markets. Next year, we're going to be in Miami, in the United States. United States of America represents for us one big challenge that we need to make sure we take in that way. I see a lot of enthusiasm already with the announcers in Miami. The tickets are almost finished. The level of attention is there. Therefore, it's our duty to make sure that we, I don't know if it's right to say that, hammering down this intense moment in the weeks forward because we need to give to our American fans the explanation of who we are. We need to provide to them a different platform because, of course, we do respect the incredible sport platform that uh, is there in the U.S., but we do believe that we can be unique. We need to be humble in understanding the reason why professional sport in the U.S., like football, like basketball, like baseball, are very strong. But we have a story to tell. We are credible, and above all, we can create passion and emotion in a way that in motorsport, of course, we have other forms in the U.S. that are very important. While well, we do believe we could have a stronger voice. That's why we want to show who we are. And with a credible voice, we can be really strong in the U.S. So that's really a target that we have, very clear. But we want to make sure that uh, our American fans, in the next couple of years, will understand what is Formula One. And this is something that we don't sleep because we know that this is a, a challenge, but we want to succeed that. In terms of technology, I think is a natural evolution of the car itself. We are moving versus hybridization with regard to the power unit. We want to develop cars that will be, in a way, more difficult to drive because we want to have people that are uh, really superheroes on the technical side. What will be different is the level of possible viewing that the sport, living the sport. In terms of possibility to see, I think that more and more we go ahead, we can see Formula One everywhere at every single moment, in the moment that you want. And this is something that I think is a natural development of all the sport, of all the things that you love to do. People in this moment are really multitask and multifunctional. And once again, this multitask approach is related to one, the things that I told you before. We want to make sure that our people, loving Formula One, can be interactive on the sport itself, knowing that in any case, the heroes of Formula One will be the heroes on which you want to maybe fight with or seeing you as an aspirational role. This is really what I see Formula One in the future. But I see clearly that it will be the protagonist of a sporting platform, not even a doubt. I'm so appreciative of your time and you breaking down F1 with us. You've taught me most of what I know about this as a business and as a story, and it's been totally fascinating to explore it. So thank you for your time today and for all the insight. Today, we're breaking down the PGA Tour. Alongside the four standalone majors, the PGA Tour is the pinnacle of professional golf. It's where the best players in the world earn their living and tiered up for their place in golfing history. To break down the business behind the stars and action you see on the PGA Tour, I'm joined by Neil Schuster, co-founder of golf media business, No Laying Up. 
No, I'm really excited for today's episode. I think it's the perfect moment to explore the PGA Tour. Seems like all eyes are on golf at the moment. We're in the middle of major season, but also two rival golf leagues are challenging the PGA Tour's position as the most important golf organization in the world. So I think the right place to start is with a really basic summary of what the PGA Tour is, and importantly, what it isn't. Any measure of its size, how many people watch the tour, how much money does it make, would be perfect to kick this conversation off. The PGA Tour in its current form is a 501c6 nonprofit organization. It's an exclusive membership organization of professional golfers. Their mandate is to basically run golf tournaments and provide their members, which are tour players who have a PGA Tour card, as they call it, as many opportunities to play competitive golf and win money from those tournaments. I guess if you boiled it down, the real value of the tour is when a tour member becomes a member, they sign away their media rights. And so if a player is going to play in a competitive golf tournament, especially one that is televised or videoed, which we've had experience with this, they have to get a release from the tour. And so that's really where the money comes from, is that they are then able to take those collective media rights from all the players, and they are able to go to broadcast partners and sell those rights, exclusive rights. So NBC, CBS, and now ESPN with the digital rights, Sky Sports over across the pond for you, and then some other stuff internationally. So they're able to, to almost pool all those collective media rights and generate a ton of value for that, which they just signed a new rights deal that went into effect this year and will go through, I think, 2030. The number there is reported to be 60 to 70% higher than it was over the previous term, which ended last year. So estimates put that at $700 million a year across all of those partners. And then the other thing they're able to do is basically market the players. So the core mandate is to run professional golf tournaments, provide the broadcasting rights for those, but it doesn't end on the course. They're also tasked with growing the players, their brands, I guess is the word that a lot of people use off the course. So whether that's equipment partners or what they call OMPs, official marketing partners. So those are Morgan Stanley with Justin Rose. Morgan Stanley is a title sponsor of the Players' Championship. They have to spend a set amount of money with players to sponsor players off the course. The PGA Tour kind of claims some of that and they pass it along to certain players. So that's kind of a general overview of how they make money right now. And if we get into the history a little bit, there's a lot there. You know, there's been a few schisms over the years of if the tour is overstepping, because it reminds me a little bit of the business breakdown you guys did on Universal Music Group, where the problem the tour has is because they're a member run organization, they can't play favorites with members. They're basically a trade organization. So their members are independent contractors, they're not employees. And so they can basically only reward the players for the most part via competitive incentives. It's very black and white. So that's why if you play good, you win money. If partners want to work with a player, the PGA Tour will facilitate that, but they're not supposed to play favorites. So what happens is some of the top players, the guys that move the needle, Rory, John Rahm, Tiger, Phil, probably don't get rewarded as much as some of the guys that play in their wake and are making millions of dollars a year. And you know nobody knows their name or what they look like. It reminds me again with Taylor Swift and Universal Music Group, where some of these top artists they have to renegotiate their contract because they're basically subsidizing some of the other artists on the label. One of the things that I always really enjoyed about your show, and you do it less recently, but more historically, has been kind of this concept of the tiger tax. Tiger is one of the most well-paid sportsmen ever to have played any kind of sport. But your contention, and what some people would say is he's still underpaid relative to what he has given back to the game. Can you just give us a framing of the tiger tax and what you really mean by that? And then we can get into the history. One of my associates here at No Laying Up, Big Randy, my guy, wrote a post for us years ago called the tiger tax. And basically what happened was 
Tiger came on tour, I believe in 96, 97, everyone knows the Masters. He blew the field away, blew away like every record in golf's most prestigious event, which it's worth noting is not run by the PGA Tour, but is a PGA Tour sanctioned partner. That led to this influx of sponsor money and attention and more fans. And so the ratings grew. With the ratings growing, more sponsors wanted to be a part of it. And so the tour was able to renegotiate broadcast rights. And that deal jumped, doubled or tripled. It went up in a big way. And so from that windfall, all the prize money went up year over year over year. And so I think the first PGA Tour player to make a million dollars in one year was Curtis Strange in 1988, I believe. And then in, I guess, 94, which is middle ground, but pre-Tiger, the largest purse was $506,000. I think it was the tour championship. If you fast forward, over 125 guys made over a million dollars on the PGA Tour, which is mind-blowing. And the largest purse this year is the Players' Championship, which is the PGA Tour's flagship event that they actually run, own, operate out of their headquarters in Ponte Vedra. And that total purse was $20 million with the winner, Cam Smith, getting $3.6 million. So between that 94 and 2022 this year, those purses have just consistently gone up. And there's been a big jump from last year to this year. A lot of that has to do with the competition from some upstarts, which we'll probably get into in a little bit. Let's go there now, because I think the history is really fascinating because it rhymes very much with the present day. So maybe take us back in time to when the PGA Tour was founded, and then take us through the key moments that bring us up to date today. It's, I think, worth noting that golf as an industry worldwide is very fragmented. You have the USGA and the RNA in the UK that are kind of the governing bodies. So they create the rules of golf. They were kind of the original golf organizations. They kind of run a lot of the amateur golf. And so the PGA Tour has a relationship with them. The US Open is run by the USGA. In 1895, I believe the PGA, so the Professional Golfers Association of America was founded. And so that's when pro golf started. And up until 1968, the PGA of America, which runs the PGA Championship, which is actually happening at Southern Hills in Oklahoma, as we're recording, and the PGA Tour, the touring professionals split. So there was a schism. The top players were getting very frustrated that they were subsidizing a lot of club professionals. So the split now is you have club professionals. So at your local municipal course or country club, there is a PGA Tour head pro, and there's probably some assistant pros. Those guys run and operate the pro shop and run the golf at those institutions. And back in the 50s and 60s, a lot of the money for both PGA Tour pros and for PGA professionals came through pro shops. It was club sales, shirts, golf fees, things like that. Then in the 50s, that's kind of when Arnold Palmer came on the scene. He basically invented brand marketing for athletes. Golf started to be televised. And that's when PGA Tour, like the top tier professionals, let's say the top 50 guys, there started to be a little bit more money in playing, but the rules of competition hadn't really changed. So up until I think 1965, whether you were number one in the world or number you know 1,000, everybody had to Monday qualify into tournaments, <laughs> which is crazy because in golf, a lot of pros can get hot for a round. And so the top guys separate themselves with consistency. In the PGA Championship, it wasn't a guarantee that Jack Nicholas would be in it. He still had to Monday qualify in. So they started to change some of these rules in the mid-60s, but the top professionals, so Nicholas and Billy Casper and Palmer, were all very upset. And they basically said, we're going to break away. We're going to start the American Professional Tour APT or something like that, and said, we need more control over the competition of professional golf. And so it kind of came to a head in 1968. And 
the PGA of America seeded to the top pros and they created the tournament players division, which was the early formation of the PGA tour as it is now. And they created a mandate and it said that the tour will be run by a commissioner, an independent commissioner. There'll be a board of four players and then an independent board of, I think, five people. And they hired Joe Dye, who was, I think, at the USGA or a former USGA commissioner, head of the USGA, to be the first tour commissioner in 69 through 74. And that kind of was the original formation. And that mandate is actually in effect to this day. And so from there, things stay pretty mellow until 74. And Joe Dye is succeeded by Dean Beeman. As people like to say, he was a great player in his own right. He had won a bunch on tour. He's a former player. And he came in and grew the tour assets from 730K in 74 to over 200 million when he retired in 1993. So Beeman was... There's a great book about him by Adam Schupek called Dean Beeman, Golf's Driving Force. His whole thesis when he took over as commissioner was golf is wildly undervalued. We're not marketing top tier golfers properly. We're not monetizing it properly with broadcast partners. So he worked with Rune Artledge at ABC and Wide World of Sports and really worked on the television stuff. And he was the first guy to start bringing in PGA Tour like official marketing partners. So National Rent-A-Car and I think Cruise Liners. And so over that period from 74 to 80, a few of the key things that he did was, like I said, he ramped up marketing. He also started the PGA Tour Pension Program, which is known to be the by far the best in pro sports, created a lot more value around the PGA Tour as an entity. But in 83, there was actually another, I guess you could call it schism, where the top players again got upset because they felt like the tour and Dean Beeman specifically was overstepping their mandate, which was Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and some of the other top guys were developing their own brands. So Golden Bear, Arnold Palmer with his umbrella, Palmer's a spokesman for Hertz Rent-A-Car. Well, the PGA Tour had just signed National as the official rental car company. So they were worried that the PGA Tour was going to cannibalize some of their personal sponsorships and their brands. But that was where it was reaffirmed that the tour is going to be responsible for marketing the game of golf, but also bringing sponsors to players directly, which is what you're seeing in the current format. So then you fast forward a little bit into 1994. Dean Beeman was succeeded by Tim Fincham. And Fincham was more of a... Some have called him a company man. I think he was a lobbyist in DC. So he had some political connections. And so right when he came on the scene, there was another attempt at a breakaway with a name that probably seen pop up recently, Greg Norman. The shark tried to create the World Golf Tour. And his thing was that there are too many tournaments. And for international players specifically, everything is US-based. And why don't we do eight to 10 big tournaments with massive you know, million-dollar purses? Again, at the time, the largest purse was $506,000. Let's reward the top players. So these will be like no-cut events with the top 40 or top 60 in the world. And we're all going to play for big money eight to 10 times a year. So that was a threat to the tour. And Fincham was able to fight that off. He then kind of stole Norman's ideas and created the World Golf Championships, or the WGCs which are a way that the tour is able to reward the top players. Those are no-cut events. There used to be more of them. They're kind of scaling some of those back. But they're no-cut events for the top 60, meaning all you got to do is show up and hit a tee shot and the last place guy gets 30K or 60K or whatever it is. And so that rewards the guys that have played the best over the last year. He also made it a very clear point to highlight that the tour's main goal, other than getting its members as many competitive starts 
and opportunities to play golf as possible is that each tournament has to have a charity centerpiece, charity component. And that's big because the tours come under fire for being a nonprofit. And we can dig into that a little bit. And was it Dean Berman before him that had changed the structure from a for-profit entity into a nonprofit, this charity model that they still run today? Yes, that's exactly right. And that was big. So the tour, it's been reported by ESPN. They did a big outside the lines piece in 2013 that the tour saves 10 to $20 million a year by not paying taxes. And so their argument is that we pass that along to charity partners. I think in the 80s and 90s, they might have gotten away from that messaging that as well as they should. And I think Fincham saw around the corner with some of that and said, we need to make this a centerpiece. But a lot of the charities is run through the tournaments. It gets a little gray because what the tour raises in actual charity on their books is much lower than what they claim at times, which they justified in doing because they're saying, hey, our tournaments generated hundreds of millions of dollars for charity. Or over the past 20 years, I think it's two or $3 billion. What they're actually putting on their books is a lot less than that. So people have argued whether they should be a nonprofit. That's a really, really helpful summary based on the history and just where we are today. Let's dive into the business model itself. And maybe it's not even a business model because it's not necessarily a business, the PGA Tour. What I'm really interested first to discuss is the structure of how it works because they're members, not employees. They're also independent contractors. Then you have the commissioner and the PGA Tour itself. You've got these tournaments that they sanction and go to, but they don't necessarily run them. Talk to me through all the different stakeholders in the PGA Tour and how they fit together. Again, back to their mandate. Their goal is to get their members as many starts or opportunities to make money as possible. The business model is rooted in broadcasting golf. So they have the exclusive rights to broadcast their members. And then from those broadcast rights, that brings in sponsors. And then they can use those sponsors to both fund the telecast and then also help their players grow their profile, work with those partners. And so everybody wins as the game of golf is broadcast and promoted around the world. The tour hasn't been super transparent. So like officially their numbers, you can see up to 2019 as far as the economics of it. But they actually released a letter to players in December outlining the business model and the forecast for 2022. And this was reported by Eamon Lynch at Golf Week and some other golf riders in December. And the revenue breakdown, the total forecasted revenue for the tour in 2022 is $1.52 billion. And so again, that's a forecast, but it breaks down to about 660 million is tournament related revenue. So that comes from title sponsors and official marketing partners of the PGA Tour. 634 million of that is domestic and international media rights revenue. I mentioned it earlier, but they just signed a new rights deal that went into effect this year. And that's estimated at around 700 million a year. That's up from 400 million a year, which was the reported number the last, I think, 10 years, the previous deal. So you can see they've grown even though that tiger impact isn't quite there. They're still able to almost double or I guess raise the revenue by 60-70% on the broadcast side. That makes up, I think, 85% of the tour's revenue or projected revenue for this year. And then the remaining $225 million, so I guess 25% of that comes from the TPC, the courses they own. And then they also have corporate and retail licensing deals. So PGA Tour Superstore is actually an independent entity. I think it's owned by Arthur Blank, who owns the Falcons. But I'm sure the PGA Tour has a licensing agreement there. On top of that 1.5, though, that doesn't include an additional 400 million in non-discretionary, what they call pass-through revenue. Basically, 100 million of that is contractually required to flow to tournaments and charities as directed by the sponsors. So that's the pile of money that the Tour passes through to help these independent tournaments run the tournament, make sure that it lives up to the standard of the PGA Tour 
And if you go to a golf tournament, they are massive, massive undertakings. It's crazy infrastructure for the broadcast. It's stands, it's catering, it's all that stuff. But being a nonprofit also makes it a lot easier for them to enlist volunteer help, which we've been critical of in the past. They make the volunteers pay. (laughs) Some of that stuff is a little bit like, huh, with billions of dollars flying around, why are we doing that? And then a very interesting piece of this is 300 million of that additional pass-through revenue goes to media partners. So the broadcast partner, CBS, NBC, they pay, let's say $700 million. But then the tour has the tournament title sponsors and FedEx. They sponsor kind of the season-long FedEx Cup. They have to purchase, I think it's around 60-70% of the commercial load. So there's a built-in advertising load to help the networks make money, make this a money-making opportunity. So that's almost like, I guess, revenue that's earmarked specifically to go straight to the broadcast and their broadcast partners. I think a really interesting part of this is how that business model and the way that they earn the money ends up shaping the tournaments and the golf that we watch as spectators. It would be much more fun to have more formats and styles of golf, but the pros tend to, or typically exclusively play, 72-hole stroke play events. So can you just explain the link of why that ends up happening and why as a fan that might not be the best thing for us? The reason for the 72-hole stroke play setup is it's very predictable. It's repeatable for the broadcast partner. You're usually guaranteed in that format to get the best players, the ones that are the most consistent over those four days. They're going to be the ones there on Sunday. So there's an event in March every year, the Dell Match Play. It's a World Golf Championship. So it's a no-cut event. And that's a match play bracket event. And the issue with match play is that they're all so good that somebody can get hot and John Rahm can get beat by Richard Bland. And no offense to Richard Bland, but John Rahm is the guy that moves the needle, right? So if there's match play, it can lead to a matchup between, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Robert Garrigus and Richard Bland in the semifinals. That's not great for Dell because they're using this event as a way to entertain clients. It's not great for the telecast. I don't know how many people really want to tune into that versus John Rahm versus Rory on Sunday in kind of an 18-hole duel. So the tour has been very conservative with format because it just leads to the most consistent, predictable outcome and the best golf overall throughout the calendar. The other thing about golf recently, there's really no off-season anymore. Basically, there's a golf tournament every week in some capacity. And so there's a little bit of oversaturation. And the example I'll use is F1. So F1 has, I think, 20 or 22 races a year, but there's a lot of you know off-weeks. I think this week is an off-week. They'll go two, three weeks where they won't race. And so it builds up a little bit of, I guess, scarcity in a way. And so because the tour has a golf event every week, not every event can be an elevated event. Not every event can be a major. And so there's a little bit of how do you keep all these sponsors happy and make sure that their ratings don't dip, but also not oversaturate and wear out the golf fan. Every tournament can't be equal. Let's now go on to the other side. They're making $1.5 billion of revenue this year, estimated to anyway. Interesting just to note that that's 10% of the NFL in terms of comparison of the two different sports. How are they paying that revenue out? Imagine the players get a fair chunk of that. How much and then who else is getting paid? Forecasted operating expenses are $716 million, And 75% of that goes towards tournament-related expenses. And then the other smaller piece of that goes to employee-related expenses paying the commissioner, building their new core headquarters, the global home, things of that nature. That leaves $806 million available for player slash prize allocation. 
the tour actually has a reserve fund and they dipped into it this year, 32 million to help fund some of these player earning increases. And the deal, I guess, from a player's perspective is the player just turns up and plays. Like, we'll do everything for you. We'll host the tournaments. You come, you play, and you don't need to worry about anything else. And that's been the model for the tour, especially in the good times when there isn't rival competition, whatever you want to call it. The tour hasn't done a great job of communicating with players how much money they're paying out. So Phil Mickelson, who's been in the news a lot, had a quote back in the fall that the tour only pays out 26% of revenue to players. This is a disgrace. We need to be paid more. The tour vehemently denies that or responded by saying some of these numbers to the players. If you take that $838 million, that's 55% of money goes out to players. They're very adamant that one, that 26% number was wrong. And two, like we're doing a lot for you guys. I think when times are good though, and the players are just focused on their game, they're not asking a lot of questions. And the tour isn't really proactively messaging how much money they're doling out as far as prizes and, and compensation goes. So you might see a bit more transparency going forwards. I think so. And I think that's a good thing. And when you look at the numbers, it's a really interesting business. It's unique in a lot of ways. But their goal, again, is to create as many opportunities for the players to play for big money or in this case, big money as they can. One thing that dipped into that reserve fund, I think they had to dip into it for COVID because they had to make some tournaments whole back in 2020 when things got canceled. But I think Tim Fincham and Monaghan did a great job of building up that war chest. But now they're dipping into it to fight off some of these rivals a little bit. And so some notable purse increases, the FedEx Cup playoffs, that pool is up to 75 million with the winner getting 18 million. So that's up from 15 million, which Patrick Cantlay won last year. So the winner this year will get 18 million. The bonus pool is 75 million. As I said, the two events that lead up to the FedEx Cup championship, the BMW championship, and I think the FedEx St. Jude is now a playoff event. Those have both gone from 11 million total purse to I think 13 or 15 million. And then the players, which is a statement by the PGA tour, because they run that event, they have made that the highest paying largest purse in golf and in history, which is $20 million. And so Cam Smith won that was 3.6 million this year. So that's bigger than the Masters, the US Open, which has always traditionally been, I think the largest purse and the PGA championship. So they're kind of pushing the pace and saying, Hey, this is what we have control over. Look what we're doing for you guys. Super interesting. So I think we framed the, the PGA Tour as it is today really, really well. Now let's get to the GC part of these rival tours, namely the SGL and PGL, or that's the acronyms that they go by. Maybe you can just flesh out the core argument that these tours are making to players and why they think there's an opportunity to disrupt the game. I want to rewind about a year. The initial rival league was the PGL, so the Premier Golf League. And when they kind of announced and rumbling started to geek out, there was a rival golf league starting. They were working with the Saudi-backed league, so the Saudi State Investment Fund. And I think the Saudis were one of many investors in the PGL. So the PGL said, cool, we're not going to work with them anymore. The model of the PGL was, you know, they use the example of F1. And what we've talked about is there are too many golf events. And because of that, the top players in the world don't face off. So similar to what Greg Norman tried to do in 94, let's have 20 events across the world, and it will be the top 40 golfers. And they will play for a prize money of $20 million per tournament, no cut events. And let's also, while we're at it, throw in a team aspect. That opens up the opportunity for top players, say Phil and Tiger, to partner with a team owner, say an equipment company or another brand, and create basically a team of four or a team of six, but four guys, their scores are going to count. And so at the end of the 20 tournament season, 
there will be a individual winner and there will also be a team payout. In some ways, that model as an avid golf fan, that sounds pretty interesting. That is something that I, I would watch. If we were starting from scratch, I think that answers some of the issues that the tour has. And then at the end of each season, there would be similar to the Premier League, a relegation, whatever, let's say the bottom 10 guys in the standings, they're going back to the PGA Tour or they're out of the PGL and then they're going to recruit the top young talent. So guys that have just come on the scene, like right now, Cameron Young, you know, he's a rookie on tour. He's making a splash. Will Zalatoris, another guy. Those guys would then get basically drafted into the 10 or 12 teams in the PGL. So that was kind of the original model a year ago. PGL, there was a schism. The SGL broke off. Well, the SGL just took the model and they beat the PGL to market with it. I think the PGL was trying to back channel with the PGA Tour and say, hey, we would like to work together with you on this. But PGA, they're not going to give up their turf and say, what are we going to become like the feeder league to this PGL? So there was a stalemate there, I believe. SGL, Super Golf League, very creative name. This is the league that you're hearing a lot about these days. And that is fully backed by private investment fund of Saudi Arabia. The CEO, it's called Live Golf, is the name of the entity, is headed by Greg Norman currently. And they have basically struck a deal with the Asian Tour, which is a subsidiary of, I believe, the DP World Tour, which is for everyone out there, the Euro Tour. And they've basically said, we're going to do the same model. We're going to have these no-cut team events, massive purses, and... We'll try to recruit the best golfers to come play in these events. So that didn't really get off the ground. And mainly because there's a lot of blowback for Saudi Arabia's involvement. And the idea is that this is sports washing. Saudis are trying to improve their brand on the world stage. And similar to what you're seeing in soccer, and you know, you could argue F1, they're trying to use sports to improve the brand. Let's put that aside for now. I want to get the facts out on what they're trying to do. So Because of that blowback, the Live Golf has adjusted and said, cool, this year, we're just going to have a collection of events. I think it's seven or eight events, a collection of events. I think they're trying to get some reps and figure out what they're doing. So it's not really the whole league model. Apparently, they're still going to have the team aspect. But right now, they're kind of putting the call out to anybody and everybody. Why don't you apply to play in our golf tournament in June? And there were several PGA Tour and Euro Tour players that applied for releases from the PGA Tour, I think last week or last month, and they got denied by the tour. And so again, tour owns the media rights to card-carrying members. So if they want to be in a no-lang-up YouTube video, we have to go and say, hey, we want to work with Max Homa and have him on an episode of Strapped or whatever. We have to go ask the tour to do that. Usually they grant those requests and they made an executive decision that they're not going to kick the can down the road. They have denied players request for a release to play in this event. And they've said there will be punishment. They haven't said what kind of punishment. There will be punishment if you choose to go. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how this is going to play out. But the argument is that, hey, we're independent contractors. You guys, this is restraint of trade in a way. You guys aren't allowed to tell us we can't go play in this tournament. You can't take away my membership rights. The PGA Tour is arguing, well, we're basically a trade association. We'll have the mandate to set the rules for members. And you've given us that power. If you don't like that, then you're going to have to use the policy board and we're going to have to change the rules. But we're not going to grant you these releases because we think it will be harmful to the PGA Tour and to the rest of our membership. So as I understand it, and we have a message board at NLU that's great. It's called The Refuge, where our members chat. And there's a lot of board lawyers on the message board. And so one of them called Mr. Duffer, he had, I think, a very succinct way that he broke it down. 
there's no set telling how this legal stuff will play out. But he said that the PJ Tour is technically a trade association. The players are basically like businesses. Like a normal business in an association, each is independent. Trade associations may ordinarily and legally set membership criteria to belong to its organization and can set criteria that would warrant expulsion from the association. The problem lies when a trade association, A, begins to look and operate like a business, and B, that business obtains dominant market power. Then, if its membership policies are intended to obtain or maintain that market monopoly power, they may be illegal and unenforceable. The argument is, does the PGA Tour have monopoly power? Their argument would be no. This Live Golf is working with the Asian Tour. You guys are free to go play in it, but we're free to say that this is detrimental to our tour. You can't come back and have the same benefits of a PGA Tour player. The players may argue if they do choose to go play and then try to come back, I'm going to claim hardship. You guys are being unfair. This is restraint of trade. You guys are acting like a monopoly. And so that'll go to civil court with an injunction. I'm not sure how fast we'll figure out what happens or if there will even be a lawsuit. But the tour saying that we are not going to release players is kind of a line in the sand. So over the next, I'd say, three, six, nine months, we're going to see this play out. And it'll be very interesting. Where the tour is going to struggle, let's set the legal stuff aside. When you boil it down, what is the tour doing to try to keep players on the PGA Tour? They're throwing money at them. They're increasing purse sizes. What's going to happen though, or what could happen is if Justin Thomas and Rom start seeing, or not even those guys, let's go down the list a little farther. Let's say like Billy Horschel, and I'm just pulling random names out. I'm not saying these guys are going to do this, but if they start seeing Richard Bland and Robert Garrigus and maybe some up and coming college player that leaves college early, go play in these live events and win millions of dollars. And these guys are ranked in the hundreds or 200s in the world. And they're grinding it out on the PGA Tour for 100K or 500K for a top 20. They're going to start saying, hey, man, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm trying to make a living. That's going to be difficult for the tour to overcome. And when you look at who's backing the SGL and Live Golf, they've got runway. They're basically saying, cool, we have a massive war chest, billions of dollars that we're willing to float this tour as it gets on its feet. And we can just kind of wait it out. And maybe we'll wear down some of these mid-tier players. And then the mid-tier players go. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a second. Some of the top-tier players, they're grinding on the PJ Tour and they could be winning these events because the strength of the field isn't as good. That's all projection. I'm just kind of playing it out. But that's, I think, the strategy that the Live Golf squad is trying to put into practice. From a strategic perspective, it's really interesting. It just really reminds me of the Hamilton-Helmer counter-position thing of the PGA Tour has built its business model around, obviously, the bulk of its revenue comes from media as well as advertising sponsorship. Those stakeholders want the best players playing as much as possible for as long as possible, which lends itself to many events over four days playing the same format. For them to turn that around and give the players more time off or to give the fans more innovative formats, they have to nuke their business model and completely change it. So it's really interesting to see what will happen here. You nailed it right there. They're hamstrung by year. It's like turning a cruise ship. Another one of my associates, Mr. DJ Pie, he made the analogy of the electrical grid. He was like, yeah, you know, I bet like if you talk to a bunch of like energy companies, they'd love to start from scratch can we just build the grid over? But you can't do that because you can't turn off everyone's lights for two years. So then all of a sudden, you're just tacking on, in this case, PIP programs and Comcast business top 10s. And you're absolutely right. The model is we have to have 
a tournament every week or 45 of them because that's our mandate to the players. That's also the one lever that they've pulled for years and years is let's get more sponsors. Let's get more tournaments that sponsors can attach their name to. But then you start to look at the broadcast numbers, the Nielsen stuff, and some of the numbers and off weeks are not good. At some point, do these sponsors of some of these lower tier events say, hey, man, I'm paying millions of dollars here and I'm just not getting the eyeballs. And I think golf has always hung its hat on, well, the demographic, it might not be as big, but it's really good. It's affluent, male, it's perfect for your work days and your finance companies and kind of high net worth individuals and C-suite folks are watching these tournaments. But at some point, it's like, well, hold on a second. If there's a rival golf league and they start to get some momentum, what does that mean? Do the broadcast partners say, hey, wait a second, like, is there an opt-out language? Can we go and, and work with that tour? Or do we have to exclusively work with the PGA Tour on broadcasting? So I don't know the answer to those questions. But if the game gets split and half the good players are playing over here and another half are playing over here, it could get interesting. Neil, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for breaking down the PGA Tour with me. Dom, thank you. It was a pleasure. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 